Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report's weekly technology report. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. This new program broadens our weekly coverage aperture. We're still going to be covering cyber, but also the full spectrum of technology, from artificial intelligence to semiconductors, from nanotechnologies to everything else that are critical to national security and economic prosperity. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell since 1935. Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Joining us now is the new chief executive of Purdue University's Applied Research Institute here in Washington, D.C., Dr. Mark Lewis, who has come to the job of growing the capabilities of one of America's top engineering schools from the National Defense Industrial Association's Emerging Technologies Institute, which he founded. Mark, it's an honor and pleasure. Congratulations on the new gig. Uh, and thanks so very much for making this your first interview uh, since the announcement of your new office. Vago, thanks so much for having me. It's always a pleasure. Uh, it is a, a pleasure indeed. Before we get started, our daily podcast is sponsored by Bell. Leonardo DRS and HII sponsor our global coverage. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage. Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage. And GE Aerospace uh, sponsors our air and naval coverage. Purdue is uh, one of a handful of leading institutions uh, that uh, is uh, joining the ranks here in Washington, D.C. Obviously, Johns Hopkins uh, Applied Physics Lab, uh, Stanford uh, University, as well as Georgia Tech uh, are, are the schools in this field that you know, are the, are the confluence of academia and national security. Obviously, anybody uh, that knows anything about the Boilermakers uh, knows uh, that you guys do aeronautic, hypersonic, and all of this other great work that supports national security. Talk to us about what the Applied Research Institute is going to be doing and what you hope to accomplish with it. Because it was founded, I think, about two years ago. It hasn't yet hit its full stride. The Applied Research Institute, as you said, started about two years ago. Uh, but I will be the inaugural uh, chief executive officer. So, you know, they laid the groundwork, they built a foundation, and now we're going to take it to the next level. So really, I, I view the Applied Research Institute as an organization that's going to leverage the incredible intellectual depth and rigor and research capabilities of Purdue University and apply them to absolutely critical problems that we as a, as a nation, as a society are facing including you know, engineering problems, agriculture problems, applying science and technology, um, with a specific focus on economic prosperity and also national security. And one of the things that, that has me especially excited is, as you know, my background has been you know, one leg in academia, but another in, in defense. But one of the things that has me especially excited about this is that Purdue has a really special, I think, unique focus on research in the service of national security. Um, so, 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 so Harry is gonna, gonna, gonna do that. Um, we'll even doing classified work, um, working with government, working with industry, um, working with other, uh, other uh, like-minded organizations to advance uh, this list of technologies that are gonna be critical to, to national security. And, and what are some of those uh, technologies? Uh, how are you going to be working with your competitors? Right. I mean, at the end of the day, ac academia is both about partnership, but also uh, a little bit about uh, competition. Uh, your your background is from MIT. I think you're the only person I know who's MIT, MIT, MIT uh, in in your uh, degrees. Um, how do you right? How are you going to be distinguishing uh, the the program? And as you said, what are the key technologies? 
that you guys are going to be focused on? Uh, so right now we've got a, uh, our, 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 we, we've got a few key technology areas for national security. Uh, microelectronics, which is a specialty at Purdue. Hypersonics, as you know, I've spent most of my own research career working in hypersonics. Energetic materials, and then cyber physical security. Um, Perry's also focused on global development. So um, doing various uh, applications of you know, technology, uh, innovation, to uh, offer humanitarian assistance um, for education, economic growth, uh, entrepreneurship. Um, Harry's also got this, this focus on infrastructure research, um, some with national security and defense applications, some for energy and power, new ways to build things quickly, uh, new ways to build facilities, national defense facilities. And then finally, technology acceleration. And this, in large measure, leverages Purdue's work in, in agriculture, uh, mm. a platform in digital innovation that supports agricultural systems. And, and here, you know, the reach is not just the United States, but but around the world. So those are the four pieces right now. Um, I will I'll tell you one of the many things that has me really excited about this job is that, of course, I'll come back to national defense and my work in hypersonics. And Purdue has some of the nation's foremost wind tunnel capabilities. Um, and they're building a lot more. Um, I'll also tell you one of the things that, that really attracted me to this. Um, so there, there is this incredible spirit of innovation with Purdue. Um, but it's, an, it's a very effective um, campus in working with the rest of its state's infrastructure, right? So I think more than any university that, that I've ever seen, as much or more than any other university, Purdue works incredibly well with local industry, works incredibly well with local government, works incredibly well with federal installations in the state of Indiana. So for example, the US Navy has a base in Crane, Indiana. And they're closely coupled to the things that happen at, uh, at Purdue. Um, I'll also note, you, know, you talk about uh, uh, cooperation with, with uh, other institutions, similar institutions. So um, Purdue works really well with other universities in the state of Indiana, uh, Notre Dame, Indiana University. Um, so that, that all made it an incredibly attractive proposition for me to, to, to uh, uh, join the, the Parry team. Um, I would uh, love to delve deeply into wind tunnels. I was out at Ames recently, and I uh, thought of you uh, and our uh, co-conspirator on our business uh, podcast, Dr. Ron Epstein, uh, who, uh, you know, his PhD was in uh, uh, rotor blades uh, and uh, airfoils. Uh, but I'm not going to do that. What I'm going to oh darn! Uh, I was ask, hoping you would. <laughs> I know exactly. Our audience has been has been spared, except for those twelve people in the audience who are very very excited in, in uh, aerodynamics. Hey, high speed aerodynamics are a lot easier in the in uh, the hypersonics uh, than they than they are uh, in uh, helicopters uh, and uh, subsonic, <laughs> which is, is just a disaster. Anyway, mm -hmm. um, yes. More specifically, this budget, uh, the administration's budget, comes on the heels uh, of the CHIPS investment, uh, which is a historic investment. Uh, you know, you talked about microelectronics, and we'll get to that in a minute. What are the elements uh, of the Pentagon's uh, budget and, and the administration's budget more broadly, Mark? Do you like and what are parts of it maybe you like a little bit uh, less? Because if you're a technologist, there is a lot of government investment going into a lot of very interesting places. Yes. So I got to tell you, overall, <laughs> I'm absolutely delighted with this budget. Um, it's obviously good for the Pentagon writ large, but it's also good for science and technology. 
So across the board, you see the largest investment that that we've ever seen in, in the S&T side of the house. And you know, I like to point out why, why is that incredibly important? Well, we know the department needs to modernize. And that means it needs to bring introduce a whole range of new technologies, um, everything from artificial intelligence to cyber to space. Um, and this budget is is very generous in, 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 in advancing that. Um, you know, I, I I frequently point out that the Department of Defense is is the big dog on the block in in the U.S. government when it comes to funding, uh, research and development and test and evaluation, um, and and this budget continues that tradition. So overall, I'm, I'm actually quite happy with it. Um, you know, if I do a drill down, um, there's 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 frankly very little in this budget that, from a science standpoint, that I'm not happy with. Um, it was a it was a good year across the board. Um, I always look for investments in basic research because often that's the easiest thing to hit, and we see very healthy investments in basic research. Um, you know, I'll come back to my 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 first love, hypersonics. Um, it's a really good year for uh, hypersonics. And one thing I want to specifically call out, um, you know, among the concerns that many of us have had in the realm of hypersonics is the dimin our diminishing test and evaluation capabilities. This gets us back to wind tunnels. Sorry, I'm gonna go there. Gets us back to wind tunnels, <laughs> but also flight test. Please and, be my guest, be my guest, Mark. All right, You're thank you. You're pushing on an open, uh, yes. an easy door. But, but um, you know, uh, I'll, I'll call out that the, the Test Resource Management Center, TRMC. So those are the folks who manage uh, ground tests and flight tests across the department. They did really nicely in this budget cycle, deservedly so. And they have jumped on, they have embraced the importance of investing in hypersonic test and evaluation. Oh, I'll tell you something else that I'm, I'm also very happy about. So I think one of the proudest uh, organizations that, that I, 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 I was associated with, one, one of the associations that I was mo most proud of when I was in the Pentagon was the Space Development Agency. Um, it was really a bit of a bold, brash experiment, if you will. Uh, the Space Development Agency was created with the mission of of, of developing, researching and developing and deploying proliferated low earth orbit satellite constellations. Because many of us felt that's how we have to go in the future. And indeed, you know, SDA was stood up with this motto of uh, always faster, semper sidious. And we had a lot of concerns about whether, whether its momentum would continue. And it has, they just had, a, they, they recently had a launch. Space Development Agency got swallowed into the US Space Force but again, it's doing really well. I mean, we had people who were predicting doom and gloom that as soon as SDA got swallowed into the, in, into, into the Space Force, that would be the end of it. No, that hasn't happened at all. It's actually flourishing. It's doing well. The Space Force is taking care of it. And it's extremely well-funded. Congress has seen the value and understands that it goes beyond just the, the satellites the Space Development Agency is putting in place, but also, but also extends to creating this whole new culture of doing things differently in space across the board. Let me let me just ask uh, a brief uh, hypersonic follow up before we we go to uh, the chips uh, investment because I also want to get your take on uh, artificial intelligence. Are we getting the programmatics right? Because we're trying to do um, right, crawl, walk, run. Uh, Neil Thurgood, uh, a force of nature, uh, was uh, trying to develop a hypersonic ballistic missile, right, glide body, industrial base while fielding a weapon uh, by the 24, uh, 2024 deadline. The United States Navy is partnered with the Army on that in terms of prompt global strike. 
but that's a very expensive uh, way of solving the problem. The U.S. Air Force going to an air breathing solution, um, and the Arrow program has not quite succeeded. Or do we do we have a roadmap, the right kind of roadmap? You know, you you raised kind of a little bit of a red flag in um, the test and evaluation side and the development side of things. Are we building out the right kinds of capabilities to be able to produce these systems at scale? as there is evidence that our adversaries are already able to do that. I mean, I don't know how good they are. You know the answer to that question yeah. better than I yeah. do. But Yeah, so so here's what I'd say about hypersonics. So the department across the board has built out roadmaps. And by and large, I think the roadmaps make sense. Um, we are now seeing the investments in those roadmaps. And I gave the example of TRNC. So yeah, we're in a bad situation. Um, it's being addressed. The right people are concerned about, you know, we, we have top men working on this. <laughs> but seriously, the, the right people, I think they're moving in the right direction. Um, you know, the, the first step in solving a problem is acknowledging that you have that problem. The department acknowledged that it had that problem and is moving very quickly. You, know, you mentioned the Army program. Um, they are moving super fast to deliver a capability uh, to actually deploy weapon systems. Uh, actually, they're, they're looking for deployment by the end of 2023. Um, so this year, and again, in my mind, that's going well. Navy, I mean, one of the great, great stories that, that we see in hypersonics is how well the Navy and the Army are working together, sharing information and leveraging each other's technical accomplishments. Um, I, I do worry a little bit about those services that they need to start palming to set, you know, set the money aside to actually buy these things in large quantities. Because I've always said that for hypersonics to be effective, we need to have a lot of these things. If all we do is build a handful of these, a handful of hypersonic weapons and put them in a couple of tubes, that's not really going to produce the effect that we need. We need to be producing lots of numbers of hypersonic weapons in the hundreds and the thousands to address future threats. Now let's come to the Air Force. So you mentioned, you know, obviously, there's been a lot of press lately about the Air Force kind of shifting its focus towards air breathing. So I'd give you kind of a, a, a glass half empty, glass half full uh, answer on that one. Um, I've actually always felt that the, that the Air Force should have been uh, primarily focused on the air breather. Um, right. I, I said that seven years ago. Actually, I said that 10 years ago. Um, for the Air Force mission, and specifically for the Air Force mission, which includes dropping things out of bomb bays and launching things off of wings, air breathers have a lot of advantages. They package better. They, in principle, should be less expensive. You can fit more of them in a bomb bay, for example. Having said that, I do think it's important that we have both the air breather and the boost glide systems, the tactical boost glide systems. I'm, I, I don't think it should be, I never thought it should be either or. Either or. It should be both. Um, but if you had to pick one, or if you wanted to work on one first or field one first, I think the Air, Air, the Air Force has this one right, that it, that it really was the air breather. Um, ultimately, I, I think of hypersonic weapons sort of the same way we thought about uh, fighter jets in, in, in the 80s, uh, the sort of high-low mix where you had the you know, the high-end uh, fighters, the F-15s, double-engine uh, double, double aircraft, which was the deep penetrator, open, could knock the door down. And you had the F-16 single-engine fighter, a less expensive right. uh, 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 platform. I think of hypersonics in the same way. You'll have the more expensive ones, the boost glide systems, but then you'll have the less expensive, maybe slightly less capable in terms of range, but still because they're less expensive that you, you can produce more of them. So I'm, I'm going to give the Air Force a B plus. Um, 
I wish both programs were continuing. If they had to pick one, I think they've made the right choice. Um, let me uh, take it to chips investment. Uh, obviously, microelectronics are uh, seen as a, a key strategic discriminator. You don't make this kind of investment. Um, last week, we uh, heard uh, from Dale Swartz uh, at McKinsey uh, talking about uh, uh, sort of the, the impact and the prolonged nature of this uh, investment, uh, and also gave the audience sort of a sense of the scope of this program, right? And uh, all the work the Commerce Department is doing, uh, working very closely with the Pentagon as, as well, rolling announcements in terms of capabilities and investment before we got uh, started. Uh, I, I uh, um, uh, lecture at the Maxwell School in Syracuse, and obviously a large national investment, uh, you know, both both by uh, government and industry uh, going there with uh, thousands of, of jobs. How does that microelectronic investment translate into the university level, Mark, uh, and the research, the work, right? I mean, you're, you're good at looking long term. What are the impacts that we're going to be seeing coming out of this, not just five, 10, but 20 years downstream? Uh, because more and more kids, right, are not pursuing, you know, English and history degrees more and more are pursuing degrees in engineering, in cyber, uh, and in technology, in part because we're in a new technology age. Yes. So, you know, I, I think you're, you're hitting on, a, on, on the, the, actually, the answer to your own question, which is the universities have many, many contributions to make. I mean, we, we keep, for example, we keep asking, are we approaching the end of Moore's law? You know, people predicting we're hitting the end of Moore's law, the rule of thumb that tells you the increase in computer speed. Um, and, and every time someone predicts the end of Moore's law, no, we, we come up with faster computers, faster chips. And I think we're gonna have to take different approaches, different architectures, maybe go to three-dimensional architectures, but there's still a lot of space to, de to develop new capabilities. And that's something that the universities can play an absolutely critical role. But there's another thing the universities do. And, and I, again, your, your question kind of alludes to this, which is it's workforce. You know, microelectronics are so fundamental to everything that we do. Obviously, everything in, in our daily lives, uh, but, but, but every, everything the department does, um, that it's critical we have the technical talent to continue to advance this field. And, and so that's, that's, that's one of the roles that the universities will uh, absolutely play. And, you know, you're, you're, you're absolutely right that we've got more and more students who are pursuing uh, technical degrees. Um, I, I've always felt that we don't have to sell students to, we don't have to sell them on the, the excitement of science technology. I, I happen to think they're very exciting fields in which to enter. What we have to do is get the best and the brightest kids working on problems that are gonna be important for national security, right? And these are really, really smart kids. Anyone, anyone who questions the intelligence of the current generation of students hasn't spent time with them. They are smarter, they are more capable, they've got more tools at their fingertips than any previous generation. And anyone who you know, says these young whippersnappers, they, they can't do what we used to do is, is, is missing the obvious, that this is an incredibly, incredibly capable right. generation. So how do we harness that generation? Um, there are several ways. One, give them exciting things to work on, right? I, I, I'm a child of, of, of the space program. When I was growing up, the idea of walking on the moon, this was incredibly exciting. It's what got me into aerospace engineering. So big national efforts, national initiatives with exciting outcomes. That's the way to harness that intellectual potential. And then 
frankly, consistent funding. Um, right. My own field of hypersonics, if I were to tell you the, the biggest impediment to our advances over the years, it's been inconsistent funding. We have these funding cycles where we're up, we're down, we're up, we're down. And, and again, students are smart. So if you're sitting in a university, you're getting an engineering degree and you look at a field where, gee, uh, uh, all, all my friends who got their degrees in that area, they're unemployed, you're not likely to go into that area. So right. maintaining that consistent funding over a long period of time, that's absolutely essential in building the workforce that we need. And I think that's one of the things that the CHIPS Act really helps with. And uh, we should uh, say, may uh, Gordon uh, Moore rest in peace because he passed away late uh, last month at the age of 94. I mean, absolutely one of America's uh, giants. Um, yes. Very quickly, yes. we've got we've got about two minutes left. This is uh, a long running joke with us. I'm giving you more than 30 <laughs> seconds yeah, thank to you. Answer, <laughs> answer these questions. Um, for many people, chat GPT has brought uh, AI home to them, right? Whereas mm -hmm. Siri has been doing AI for like a decade. Uh, right. And artificial intelligence is actually built into a lot of things we do. How is it we need to be thinking and policy strategy planners, the uh, national security community need to be thinking about generative AI, but also AI in, in general, because now you have a lot of armchair discussions about, you know, the morality of AI. And, and certainly it's going to be complicating. Right. I mean, it'll do deep fakes uh, and the more people use it, the more flawed they're finding it is, even if it's very, very impressive at, at writing uh, letters, for example, that, that can pass the, you know, the, the human test. Yes. Ultimately, what's the key, um, given that our adversaries, as you and I have discussed many times in the past, are more likely to weaponize some of these capabilities than maybe we are? That's not to say that we're not, but we'll weaponize yeah. them in a way that maybe we won't. So let me key in, you know, recently there was a letter signed out by a number of prominent individuals who asked that we have a halt to research in artificial intelligence uh, until we kind of consider where we're going with the field. And I looked at that and said, oh my God, these folks have ignored all the lessons of history. Um, because you can't, once, once the technology starts advancing, it's really difficult to halt it like that. Um, but then I'll, I'll, I'll also say, you know, I, I, I tell my friends who worry about artificial intelligence, okay, step back. <laughs> As some of my Air Force friends used to say, smoke a lucky. By the way, don't really smoke a lucky. They're really bad for you. But, you know, take a deep breath and ask, all right, what are we really talking about? Um, so far, we are not talking about self we're, we're not building conscious machines as best as we can tell. Maybe someday we're not there yet. These are not machines that, that, that are, are, are self-actualizing, that are going to decide that, hey, they're better off without us than with us. Um, I actually point to the incredible potential of artificial intelligence. Um, the ability, for example, of artificial intelligence to help us make better decisions. So, you know, it's just one example. You know, today, um, it, when, we, when we select targets, um, there's always the question of, well, are we getting the right target? Is it the right, right, you know, are we, are we, are we, are we dropping our weapon where we want to be dropping it? Artificial intelligence can really help us in that. Right? I think it actually increases the morality in many cases of some of the systems that we use, but it, it increases the likelihood, increases the accuracy, and increases the likelihood that we're doing what we think we're doing. So in that case, artificial intelligence, and actually what we're really talking about is machine learning per se, not, not, not true artificial intelligence, is a beneficial tool. Um, but I'll, I'll take it one step further. I think it's pretty clear that machine learning, artificial intelligence will be a part of nearly everything that the military does going into the future. 
I can tell you when I was in the Pentagon, I asked my lead for artificial intelligence to do a kind of a do a survey of all the programs that were claiming to use artificial intelligence. So she showed up after a couple of weeks that this is absolutely impossible. There are so many programs that are relying on artificial intelligence. You can't possibly cataloging catalog them all. Now, having said that, a lot of those programs didn't really understand what artificial intelligence was. It became a catchphrase. But the right. ones that were, I mean, you saw some really intriguing applications. Uh, one of my favorites is, of course, the, 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 the wingman. You've got a, you know, an right. unmanned system, an uncrewed system that flies along with, um, with a manned aircraft and enhances its capabilities. I think that's an incredible application and something that will frankly become uh, uh, the only way we'll be able to operate going into the future. Um, let me ask you a last question, which is what is the technology that we need to be paying attention to or capability or insert phrase here that we're not, that our adversaries might be better at than we are? Ooh, so without giving anything away. Yeah. So, so I'm actually, it isn't necessarily a, a, a technology that they're better at than we are because I think we're better at it. But the one that I think we should be paying more attention to is biotechnology. And I don't mean just for uh, addressing pandemics and germ warfare, but I mean biotechnology using biological processes in manufacturing, for example. So you, know, you think about bio organi organic uh, uh, solutions that will uh, manufacture jet fuel or produce uh, 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 concrete-like materials. Um, that's incredibly promising. And that's an area that we need to be focusing on. Then there are other applications of biotechnology um, human machine cooperation uh, that really deserve much more attention than I think we're, we're paying today. But, but having said that, I think there's also good news there, but you're seeing m significantly increased activity, both in the department, in the private sector, along these lines. Mark, always an honor and pleasure having you on the program. Thanks so very much. Fairwinds following seas uh, and looking forward to having you on the program, uh, as well as others uh, from your team uh, to join us to talk about everything from microelectronics to humanitarian stuff to chips, uh, you name it. Thanks so much. Vago, thanks so much for having me.